Nick, this is Swordplay After Hours 2. I guess we didn't work hard enough to get fired the first time. What happened? Not sure, but let's redouble our efforts and try again. Okay, here we go. <laughs> this After is Hours sword, 2. This is Swordplay. We are your hosts. I am Nick Perez, preaching minister for the Davis Park Church of Christ in Modesto, California. I'm Alex Flood. I'm an evangelist for the Lake Phelan Church of Christ in St. Paul, Minnesota. On this episode of Swordplay, After Hours, Volume 2, we had such a resounding uh, response to After Hours 1 that uh, we thought, well, let's let's try it again and, and see... See what happens. Let's make some more sausage. That's right. That's right. What did we talk about last time, Nick? We covered all kinds of things. COVID-19, dreams, Holy Spirit, spiritual oppression, occult. Dark relics. Age fluidity, dark relics, yeah. Movies, what are you watching? So I don't know where we left off, but uh, maybe I'll start off by asking you a question. And again, folks, here's how this works. We do not know what the other person is going to ask us. Uh, I don't even think sometimes the other person knows what they're going to ask us. So (laughs) we are are shooting off the cuff here. Free-willing stream of consciousness. uh Uh-huh. And it might might make it to the air. It might not. So we'll we'll see what happens. If you are listening to this, it was a success. There you go. If you are not listening to it. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Then we did get fired. Okay, so, Nick, you are down there in California Way, right? Yeah, that sounds right. Californication, and you are Central Valley, right? So, Mm -hmm. you're not you're not recording on the beach right now. You're you're inland. Unfortunately, not. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I hear that there are. Lots of fires going on, Oregon, Washington, and especially California. And it's kind of crazy because uh, I hear so many things going on, like uh, the fires are from climate change, right? The earth right. is heating up so fast that the fires are spontaneously breaking out. Okay. Uh, I hear that, uh, actually, here's this video from, from the government saying that China and Russia have energized weapons satellites. And uh, it kind of alluded that maybe those are starting fires. It's like, oh, because you see these houses that burn down and the trees around them don't burn down. That's strange. Um, and then you you see different videos and local news posts where arsonists are being arrested for starting fires. And so what what's going on in California, Nick? You live there. Is it... Is it climate change? Is it arson? Arsons? Is it is it um, is it we- energy weapons from the sky? Satellites? Uh, what's why is California on fire, Nick? Yeah, D all of the above. Um, <laughs> the uh, so the fire started uh, a couple weeks ago. Uh, uh, some storms passed through. Uh, lightning storms and ignited um, uh, some of the forests over near the Bay Area, and so I think that was that was the genesis of uh, several of the fires. Were I mean it was it was a record number of lightning strikes that that happened 
and and so that that was part of it. Um, since then, there have been reports they've caught people trying to. It, it was arson. They're trying to light fire uh, forests on fire. Uh, reports of that. Um, people taking advantage. Not sure what exactly their motivation is, but yeah, that there there were those who uh, were. It was intentional. Um, you compound this with uh, government uh, mismanagement of the uh, Forest Service, um, and and you have buildup of uh, overgrowth that hasn't been taken care of like it has been historically in the past, and it's just kind of a, a tinderbox for uh, these these fires. And, and and so it's very easy for them to to ignite and and we're seeing that and they burn like crazy uh, at one point one of the fires was traveling at like 126 feet per minute or so, something crazy it was just wow yeah it was very fast very fast moving and um, but uh, one of the interesting things that happened uh, is so so Davis Park uh, we're we're shut down. Um, the the congregation we're not meeting on Sunday mornings in person. We are meeting exclusively online on the YouTube channel and nightly Thursday nights through Tuesday nights. We are live on our Facebook page with a evening devotional and prayer time. And and so uh, we spend a lot of time praying about various prayer requests and concerns. And, and one of the things that we have prayed for is that God would. Do something to extinguish the fires and to clear up the air, because that's the thing, right? All the smoke is coming down mm. into the valley, and, and our air quality was at uh, one day it was the worst in the world. It's in like the five hundred range, right? It's what, however you know the, the the air quality index. It's just it's you could see the ash in the air coming down, and oh man, um, yeah, it was terrible, <clears throat> and so you know. Certain groups, I'm included in that because I have asthma, right? It's just very poor air quality is going to just compound your um, your pre-existing conditions. And so, uh, but we were praying, you know, God do something, and God did something. The air quality now is good, <laughs> even though the fires are like 30% contained, um, one of them is, and another one is, they're, they're not expecting it to be fully contained until the middle of October, but the air quality is good because something that never happened before, a um, some kind of like typhoon, uh, tropical typhoon uh, started in the Pacific and it sucked all the smoke out into the ocean. <laughs> over the ocean. Yeah. No way. Yeah. I, I heard that this morning. I was like, what? That's crazy. <clears throat> Um, so we're still, you know, fires still need to be contained and all that, and we're going to continue to pray that God would, uh, you know, uh, bring those under control, send rain and, and all that. But I heard that this morning because the air quality has been improving over the last couple of days uh, so much so. I'm going to go jogging this afternoon because it's so good. <laughs> but uh, wow! But the, the reason is because a something that has never happened before happened. And, and so, you know, praise God. God did that, right? Um, not the uh, weaponized satellites that are <laughs> in control by foreign 
powers or whatever. But uh, wow, yeah, that's super cool. Now, okay, so one of the theories is they're they're hoping it dissipates right over the the Pacific, the smoke. But one thing that could happen is uh, it could actually be blown back on shore and then end up covering the United States. But uh, what? Yeah. <laughs> so um, it sucked all the ash out, but it could be like blown back in to the whole country. Yeah, and I was even joking like, yeah, and it'll intensify and be even worse. But hopefully oh, no. not. Hopefully it does dissipate over the oh, ocean. No. <laughs> <laughs> but. Uh, you had yeah, me feeling then, all good for a second, and then back to depression and paranoia. <laughs> <right. laughs> it's like, oh, no. Right. So oh, I don't know anything about uh, uh, weaponized satellites. I, I'm fairly confident that climate change is not real. Well, uh, man-made climate change, uh, I think, is, is a hoax. I do think the climate does change based on... Uh, cyclical patterns, and also uh, the sun has a much bigger impact on our climate than humans do. And so um, this man-made climate change, that somehow people are responsible for the rising temperatures in the world, I think that's the height of arrogance, that we are so important and so big, and we're not. We're really not, in the grand scheme of things, that big and that important. Um, I think all that is just uh, it's a it's a uh, a ploy for money. It's a ploy for power and control over people to dictate what they can and cannot have and do and things like that. Now, on the other hand, I do think we need to be good stewards of God's creation. Um, it's God's good creation. It's gone haywire because of sin. But uh, um, as far as man-made climate change, no sale for me. I think there are bigger things. I think the oceans have a much bigger impact on climate than than humans do. I think the sun. I think just weather, cyclical weather patterns. You look back historically, and and weather fluctuates. In fact, let's even talk. So I'm I'm talking like large scale. If you go back to like the 1200s, I mean there were, the the temperatures were much cooler in the 1200s than they are now. Um, and in fact, there seems to be, we're, we're, I think there might be where we're trending back downward toward something cooler. But even content, in a more contemporary sense, you go back to like the 60s and the 70s, you know what the big concern back then was? Global cooling. <laughs> that it's getting colder and the, the farms over in Russia are not going to produce mass starvation and all this stuff. And so we need to somehow warm the world up. And... Um, and, and, you know, global cooling, well, that's gone the way of the dodo. And now it's been replaced by global warming and man-made climate change and all this stuff. And it's like, well, no, I, I don't think so. And if we really want to talk about true global warming, we could read like, I don't know, Second Peter 3, where the world's going to be burned <laughs> up with fire. And Anyway. I'm still spinning out that that ash could be blown back out over us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's like, one theory. It's like a verse, like, you sow to the wind, you reap the whirlwind. That's like, right. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Well, I did see an article that some of the smoke, it has, so people in, like, Idaho were getting some of the smoke, and even as far as, like, New York, there were traces of, of the smoke from these fires. So, um, yeah, welcome to the West Coast. It's on fire. Okay. So... Wow. 
<laughs> so, Alex, we've we've got uh, the coronavirus. We talked about COVID nineteen last mm-hmm. time, mm-hmm. and they're after hours. And um, but good news, help is on the way because there's vac there's a vaccine on the way. <laughs> um, it could be available as soon as next month, October. Um, oh. However, um, let's let's talk about vaccines, Alex. Can you're you're not a real big proponent of vaccines for various reasons, right? Could you uh, could you enlighten us concerning vaccines? I will do my best. So my looking into vaccines really didn't start until my uh, my second kid came around. So my first kid had all the vaccines, was on the schedule and whatnot. And then the second kid came around and she was on the schedule for the first uh, year or two. And then uh, it was brought to my attention that some of these vaccines have human diploid cell groups, which is a fancy way of saying uh, fetal stem cells. And so I was like, really? And so I looked up which ones, the MMRs is a big one. And so uh, there's a good number of vaccines that have fetal tissue obtained from abortions. Um, And that goes back to the 60s. I think it was a loophole. They took the tissue from aborted babies in Europe um, so that they could then bring it over to the states and use it to develop vaccines. Took many, many babies to finally develop it, but the ones that are available now in vaccines come from two different babies. Very uh, disturbing stuff. I was like, man, I would have thought I've heard of that by now because it's been, what, 50, 60 years? So, but it's true. Yeah, you can go to, uh, there's a resource, um, a reputable resource is the the Philadelphia Children's Hospital. And... um, that is, they have lots of material and resources and videos, and it's a children's hospital, right? It's a, it's a legit hospital saying, yep, like, they're not, and they're not against it. They're just saying, yep, fetal tissue in lots of these vaccines. So that was, so for the second child, I stopped the vaccines that had fetal tissue in it because I don't think that's right. Um, and then uh, third kid comes along, and we've uh, continued with the same trend, like third kid got vaccines, except for the ones with fetal tissue. And uh, fourth kid is coming along any day now, and um, we're probably not going to do any vaccines. Here's the thing. Vaccines are made in various different ways. Obviously, using human fetal tissue is immoral. I, I shouldn't have to explain that, but uh, if I need to at another time, I will. But... but uh, uh, there's also, you know, the, the idea is like, we are, we are using animals to make these. And so you get these vaccines and it's got kidney, uh, monkey kidney cells in it and dog, different dog organ cells and, uh, various animals. And some of these, some of the ways is they inject an animal with the virus and they, um, you know, then take its blood out and they isolate the, the antibodies from the blood and they create vaccines that way. There's just a, a wide variety of ways, and they all seem very uh, questionable to me. And so, so we're we're not doing that. Um, not to mention, you know, lots of uh, other questions like, okay, um, 
if these vaccines are harmful uh, on whether intentional or unintentional, is there any recourse for the for the family of the who gets harmed? And the answer is no, there's not. Uh, I think since 1986, there's been legislation that basically gives these vaccine companies um, uh, uh, zero liability. And that's especially true with the COVID-19 vaccine that's coming out there. If the COVID-19 vaccine, uh, COVID vaccine comes out and they have um, problems, there is, there is absolutely no liability. You have zero recourse. At least with other vaccines, there is something called a vaccine court that you can go to. And the and they will pay you <laughs> if you can prove that uh, you were harmed by a vaccine, and that's and that's been used. That's in use. People have been paid out. But with this new one, there's there's no vaccine court for COVID nineteen vaccine. So you get hurt, you're out of luck, man. Uh, you know you're you're taking care of your kid for the rest of their life, which is probably going to be longer than the rest of your life think about that too like what are we vaccinating against like let's say i have a, a one in a million chance of this vaccine preventing my kids from getting uh measles right uh and meaning that like if if i don't get my kid the measles vaccine then he's got a one in a million chance of getting measles it's like okay and maybe that kills him it's like probably not but what if, let's say one in a million it's like well let's say I give him a measles vaccine and there's a one in a million chance that the measles vaccine turns him into an empty shell for the rest of his life. It's just like, Hmm, let's see. Do I want the one in a million chance that my kid will die from a disease? Or do I want the one in a million chance that my kid turns into an empty shell that needs to be taken care of the rest of his life, which is longer than the rest of my life. It's like, if I had to choose, I would choose the, the one that ends in death because you have closure. You have uh, some sense of moving on. It's like, you you have a child that's a shell the rest of his life? It's like, the rest of your life? It's like, no, that's that's a pretty high price to pay for a disease he'll probably never get. And if he does, it'll probably never kill him. So lots of things with it, like vaccine history, like people say, well, what about the polio vaccine? You know, it's wiped out polio. It's just like, uh, actually, I've seen data that shows polio was already on the decline and almost gone before the vaccine actually became widespread. So it was not the vaccine that did that. It was people's immune systems naturally responding to a virus. So I I am, yeah, not a big fan of the vaccine, but it didn't start out with me crusading to come to that position. It just, like, these things fell into my lap. And yeah. so... As it fell into me, as it fell into my lap, I was just like, I should look into that. And so that's, that's where I'm at right now. I, even if you are pro vaccine, right, even like lots of pro vaccine people, even they aren't going to get the COVID-19 vaccine because a normal vaccine takes five or six years to develop and you're going to develop one in nine months or six months because regulations were loosened or liability was what little liability was there is completely gone. It's like, that seems like a really, really bad idea. <laughs> so. Project warp speed. Yeah. yeah. I remember when we, when we first talked about this, like, and this may be where like some of our listeners may be, it's like, no way, right? There's, there's no way that vaccine, there are vaccines that use fetal tissue, but, um, it's like you said, it's on, they don't hide it. It's on the website, Children's yeah. Hospital of Philadelphia, chop.edu. And they have a page 
just for vaccine ingredients, fetal tissues, and uh, they use the fetal embryo fibroblast cells Fancy that are used stem cells, to, yeah. to grow vaccine viruses that were they were first obtained from elective termination of two pregnancies in the early 1960s. They have a video on here that's also available on YouTube uh, where they have a Dr. Paul Offit talking about vaccines. And there's another page where uh, they talk extensively about the history of uh, the the two the two children that were aborted. It was over in uh, in Europe. I think one was in Sweden and one was in England, something like that. Mm-hmm. And um, and and uh, the 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 cells they multiply at an exponential rate. And one of the doctors that the the limit for the number of times those cells could reproduce is named after him. I forget his name now, but, um, and then the other thing was, well, maybe it's not, you know, okay, maybe there's like a few vaccines, but they're like not the main ones that we get, but you look and they tell you it's the, uh, the vaccine for chicken pox. It's the R in the MMR rubella vaccine it's for hepatitis a and for the rape uh, one of the rabies vaccines mm-hmm. and and those are all very substantial uh oh yeah those, those are some of the main shots your child's gonna get oh yeah and they all have that aborted fetal tissue uh the cells in them in order to they, in order to produce them and they try to minimize it by saying it's just these two babies. It's just like, no, no, no. It's those two babies that they ended up being successful with. It's like there were uh, upwards of, of over 100 babies wow. that were used to finally f- get the, the the magic formula. So, yeah, it's just those two babies in the vaccines today. But that's not how many babies they went through in order he, to get to that point. Right. Even if it was just two babies, right? So we're just talking about scale now. Right. And, uh, well, just it's just two babies. No, those are babies. Those are people. Those are human beings created in yep. the image of God that were murdered, aborted, terminated. And then we use them in order to make these things that uh, – uh, these these vaccines. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because I – I, I put it. I put a brief section on it at the end of my master's thesis paper because I cover in my thesis about um, the the relating ideas of life force and child sacrifice. You should be like, listen, when when people were sacrificing their children uh, to to Molech, Kamosh, Milcom, Baal, um, they were getting something out of it, right? They they probably thought it was for the greater good of their family or their country or whatever they were getting out of it, and so they justified it. They justified it by their own by their own selfish means and desires. Uh, so uh, it's like, you know, we're not, it's not in a ritual context, you know, so these abortions, you know, aren't um, in, in front of a, a brazen, um, you know, uh, altar at the high place. But it, so does it make it okay if you take it out of the ritual context? I don't think so. It's like you're still disregarding innocent human life so that you can be healthier, so that you can be protected from some disease that you may or may not get. And if you did, it may or may not kill you. It's like, hmm, that doesn't sit right with me. That's It seems to be a double standard to be against abortion, but 
for vaccines that use abortion products. So (laughs) what if I told you you could live longer, but all you have to do is consume a little bit of fetal tissue? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. That is, uh, and you know, what's really shocking about that. I'll tell you a story. So I was at a, when I was putting all this, I wanted to do a a, a mind experiment. So I I was at the coffee shop and I went up to the baristas and I said, Hey, what if I told you that I had a pill and if you took this pill, it will allow you to live an extra 100 years guaranteed. But the, the ingredients, the way I had to make the pill was a hundred babies had to die. Would you take the pill? And if uh, the pill's already made, you can't undo the pill. Like what's done is done. Like the babies are dead. Here's the pill. Uh, would you take it? And it didn't take them long to think about it. They, uh, I asked two people there, and the first guy, after about three seconds, was like, yeah, like it's not right to, to kill babies, but what's done is done. It's already It's already happened. So if I take the pill, maybe I can use the extra time to help save or protect other babies that might be killed. <laughs> the ends justify the means. There you go. Yeah. And so I was like, really? I was like, man. I told him, I said, I would never take a pill like that, uh, even if it gave me a thousand extra years of life. You know why? And they said, why? And I was like, because there's no way I want to be stuck in this crappy body forever. <laughs> it's like, this body is going away. It's temporary. And I was like, I'm going to get a new body. And uh, I guarantee you, friend, the... The guy who makes bodies, you know, the creator of the universe, he's probably not going to give you a new body if you're trying to stay forever in this body, especially if you're doing things like okay with babies being killed so you can take your magic pill. So anyway, interesting thought experiment, but boy, it did not take those guys very long to to, to say they take the pill. I was a little shocked. Mm. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, man, I expect a little more struggle there, but, uh, you know, maybe there's there, maybe... Maybe there's the pulse of the uh, American society. Maybe the world. I don't know. All right. Well, my turn. <laughs> <laughs> so, Nick, uh, we were talking about before the before we started pushing record. We were talking about a, a basilica in spain called the sagrada familia right yeah and i was looking at the pictures of the thing and they finally finished it It took like what 120 150 years uh, and they're finally finishing it and you look on the inside and like the idea is like you're walking into like a forest basically so you have these huge pillars that then split out into branches and the colors that they chose for the stained glass you see pictures of these things and it just it looks like a rainbow inside of a forest and it's so like majestic and it's really, it's breathtaking. It's incredible. And these are just the pictures, right? Imagine being there in person. And so this reminded me of a conversation my wife and I were having about perhaps the deficiency that we have within our faith tradition, the Churches of Christ, the deficiency of incorporating beauty into our worship setting, and so I, I was wondering, what are your what are your thoughts about that? Have we lost a theology of beauty 
and what can we do to bring that back? If do we need to bring it back? So we traditionally have been very utilitarian in our uh, church buildings, right? And there's a reason why. And Sagrada Familia is just one example. I mean, we when we came and visited you guys in St. Paul, um, I specifically wanted to go to um, St. Paul's Cathedral because, uh, like I've said before, say what you will about our Catholic friends, they know how to build a building. <laughs> and it's these are impressive structures. And there's all kinds of theology that's built into the architecture of these buildings. That's right. Um, you know, we were talking about uh, the interior is designed in such a way that it, it, it communicates uh, certain truths, certain theological principles um, about what the church is doing in that sacred space um, on earth as in heaven. And so you'll have all these different, you know, images that correspond to that on the inside. And I've also uh, seen that there are certain buildings that are built. Uh, the, the structure is built so that when you look down from above, like the one that I'm, I think of, uh, and I can't remember what the, the name of the, the church is, but when you look down from from uh, above, it looks like a cross. The structure does. And, and that's because the architecture of that building is, uh, from a theological standpoint, they wanted to build it so that when God looked down from on high, he saw something beautiful. And so he sees, he sees this shape of the cross. And so that that's you know, we don't have that kind of <laughs> thinking about um, our buildings. It's again very utilitarian, um, typically a, a shotgun style building. Throw some pews in there. Uh, very very simple, and and there's something to be said about that. I, I think simplicity is 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 good, um, but at the same time, I think we do lose something in kind of having an appreciation for beauty. And our God is a God who makes beautiful things. He created a good creation, and and there, the beauty of his creation is stunning. And, and he invites us um, to partner with him in creating beautiful things as well. Um, why does God... <clears throat> What does God uh, give to Adam when he places him in the garden? Um, he gives him, before he has a woman to love, God gives him a will to obey, which is you can eat of any tree, but don't eat of these two trees, and a work to do. He is to work and tend the garden. And so, so there's your theology of work, right? Work is not something that came around as a result of the fall in Genesis 3. We were created for work. But part of the work, I'm persuaded, of the garden was to beautify it, to take mm. the, the, the beauty and the goodness of God's creation, and, and he's given us a mind, he's given us our own creative, uh, uh, creative power, uh, built in his, created in his image in order to mirror on earth his creativity now we can we can take that creativity into dark places and i think you know our discussion about vaccines may be one of those places where here we are 
uh, in with very creative minds that are producing things through very dark means. And yes, well, but they're good things. Well, yeah, but if you if you had to trudge through a river of evil to get there, <laughs> uh, not sure that's a very good use of God's creativity. On the other hand, he intends for us to take our creativity and put it to good use in his good creation. And um, and so I think Sagrada Familia is one of those examples where you had this architect and he was he 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 funneled his creative force almost exclusively into this structure, uh, this this building, but it was always for God and for his glory. And so I, I think the same thing can be, it doesn't have to be church buildings, it could be anything, right? I think we're supposed to take our creativity and apply it to uh, other buildings, to bridges, uh, and uh, even things like sidewalks. I think I was listening to uh, Vody Bauckham, Dr. Vody Bauckham, uh, talk about um, how sidewalks. There's a theology to sidewalks, <laughs> and there, you know, you go to you go to places like he's now in Africa with the uh, African Christian University. He's the dean of theological studies there. I think they don't have sidewalks in Africa, and in, in many places in Africa. And and what that communicates is you don't really value life. You just have these roads and cars can come down there and, and you know, there's no safe path for people to walk on. Whereas, you know, in, an, in a more uh, industrialized country, we, do, we have sidewalks everywhere. And it's because, and again, this was Dr. Bauckham, he was talking about there's, you, you, you uh, create these sidewalks because you value life. And, and you're providing a safe place for people, for foot traffic, right? I mean, just such, such a simple thing, right? And yet, I think, uh, you know, because we, it starts with that, that uh, theology of beauty, that, that God created a beautiful thing, and he intends for us to uh, image that and to mirror that in our own creativity and, and to develop beautiful things. So, <clears throat> yeah, even in your own home, right? should start there. Yeah. That's a, I think, where a big part of our helper comes in, right? Our helpmate helps to beautify the home. Uh, as your partner, you work together to build that. I was thinking of uh, when I was in Rome, the, um, I think the official, you know, cathedral of Rome is uh, St. John Lateran. And so we, we went to St. John Lateran's Basilica and um, the original building was gifted to the church by Constantine's mother. And uh, for like a thousand years, over a thousand years, it was this building that like on the outside looked very plain. You'd almost miss it. And so pilgrims would come and they'd be like, where is it? Where's the, where's the building? Like, oh, that's it. But they'd step inside and the inside of the building from its beginning was always very beautiful very large, elaborate, full of beauty in art. And so uh, the theological message there was intentional from what Hmm. they told us. They intentionally kept the outside plain and almost um, unimpressive, right? But the inside they always kept very awe-inspiring beauty because they said this is a building, but we want people to know that when they look at this building, there is a 
better building called the church, called the body of Christ. Uh, We are the temple of God. And though we look on the outside, normal, small, unimpressive, humble, on the inside, we have this beauty and power of God uh, because of our new spirit that he's put within us, a regenerated person inside that is growing ever more beautiful into the image of Christ. So that was the theological message, and that's biblical, right? Paul saying, mm-hmm. uh, I believe in the Corinthians, were, were vessels of clay with treasures that have been put inside. It's like, well, who puts treasures inside of a you know clay a clay vessel? She's like, well, God does. That's what He's done with us. So very, uh, I think very good things can come out of uh, beauty when we intentionally incorporate it into our our spiritual lives in the home and in the gathered church in the assembly it can have it, it can have intention it can teach theology it can bring your mind to that spiritual place that is real but you need the eyes of faith to see and so the setting that you create assists in that process so very very good okay your turn well, <clears throat> so you mentioned your your thesis when we were talking vaccines a second ago. Let's uh, how about thesis defense time, right? <laughs> oh no! Uh, let's well. <laughs> well, you only get one question. Yeah. Let's uh, let's talk about your thesis for a minute, and um, well, uh, so fill folks in what what's the thesis what what was your thesis about you mentioned life force maybe expand upon that just a little bit yeah so uh, my thesis is called the dark side life force in the bible and the ancient near east and um and really there needs to be a follow-up paper that's called the light side but uh (laughs) Mm -hmm. but for this portion it was called the dark side because there's a concept about uh, life, like what what gives us life? What is that animating force within humanity and all living creatures? Where does that come from? Where does it dwell? And how does that incorporate itself into uh, the biblical theology? When we're reading, we may come across passages that we're just like, okay, and then we move on, right? We don't have a hook to hang that on. And so I just try to put a few hooks there that I think are true to the to the ancient context of the Old Testament and their neighbors and their worldview. And I think there's a continuation through intertestamental to New Testament that maybe today is kind of lost, right? Um, I tell a story about, okay, our good friend Paul Harrington, who was on the podcast recently talking about his time in Japan. Well, the the guy that Paul baptized while he was in Japan, his name is Ryusuke, and uh, Paul teaches him the gospel, gives him like a basic outline, says, you know, through through the blood of Christ, we can be cleansed from all sin. We can have new life. <clears throat> and uh, and he says, you know, what do you think about that? Do you have any questions? And Ruske said, well, I do. I think I understand. I do have one question. His question was, why blood? And hmm. Paul was like, I honestly don't know i'm not sure um i just know that's i never thought about that you know why blood so their studies continued and in root and it wasn't a stumbling block right ruske wasn't being 
uh, you know, aggressive or anything. It was just, it was a legitimate question because it's one of those fundamental things we take for granted. We sing songs, there's power in the blood. It's just like, well, what, what do you mean there's power in the blood? Right. So this actually goes back to a, a biblical idea that the, you could call it the soul, uh, not your personality, right? Not the, the mind and the personality that still exist after your body dies, but like the, the f- force within you that allows you to move and to act and to be and um, like your battery. <laughs> it's like that life force um, that that's given by God. It's in your blood, and it actually makes a lot of sense when you come to passages dealing with blood. So one of the big uh, enigmas wrapped in a riddle inside of a mystery <laughs> that I tried to <laughs> unwrap is this pervasive command, both in the Old Testament before the you know before the Old Covenant, before the Covenant of Moses, then within the covenant of Moses, and then even within like the four things for the New Testament Christian, for the Gentile in Acts 15. And what mm-hmm. is this pervasive command? The pervasive command is don't consume blood. Right. So it's like, huh, huh, what is, why? Why is that the all-encompassing eternal command? Why is it the first thing God tells Noah when he gets off the boat? It's just like, you get off the boat, you've you've come through this enormous trial and judgment on the whole world. And the first thing God says is, Hey, be sure that you don't consume blood. Yeah. <laughs> like what kind of what kind of first thing is that to say? And so I walk in my paper through those kinds of things, thinking about, okay, where where could this possibly be coming from? I bring in uh ancient Near Eastern texts. I bring in Second Temple literature, and I bring in that alongside the Old Testament to try to enlighten our worldview so that we might be able to put ourselves into their worldview. So, you know, that there's steps to this, little baby steps. So my first section is on, you know, the life is in the blood, going back to that idea in Genesis, what makes a living creature a living creature. It's like, well, all the living creatures are things that have blood in it. And the head of those living creatures is humanity, but everything else is also a living creature, like the animals and the fish and the birds, even the, uh, yeah, any creature with blood in it. And uh, so that they are also at the top of the hierarchy in all of the cosmos. (laughs) They're Mm. under us, but they're still at the top. So how we treat animals uh, should be considered uh, more sacred than how we treat grass or trees or something like that Hmm. so that's uh my first section and then my second section is life force and food and how that ties into the meals that we see god having with people the meals within the old testament you know levitical worship system um and of course all of these are going to have nice new testament parallels and a sequel that i'll write eventually but what is the you know what is the connection between life force and food and then the um, third section is about interpreting that prohibition of blood consumption in Genesis 9. And then the um, fourth section is um, about life force and blood guilt. So uh, 
looking at the Goel, the Kinsman Redeemer. It's actually translated Kinsman Redeemer in some spots. Some spots it's translated as the Avenger of Blood. It's like, who is this Goel? What is their responsibility? Why was it so important? So life force and blood guilt, like this spiritual uh, pollution that happens when innocent blood is poured out. And then in the uh, fifth section, I talk about life force and child sacrifice. And this is really what everything is kind of eventually getting towards in my paper so that we can talk about how the concept of life force allows you to get an insight into child sacrifice and why that would have been so pervasive during Israel's state of apostasy. And uh, and that's the end of the paper. The last section, I wrap it up with um, application. I try to give some ways we can apply life force today and that's you know that's the that's the paper overall it's about 50 pages um you know it's got my bibliography at the end you know all the things that i quote and cite and and hopefully i can follow this up one day with the light side right the the concept of life force and how it helps us to understand jesus's death on the cross how it helps us to understand um the uh the the well the blood of christ and our spiritual cleansing how it helps us to understand baptism it's in there how it helps us to understand the lord's supper it's in there how it helps us to understand um the importance of hospitality and food and uh and even in even the end the end of all things right when god cleanses the earth by fire it's just like well I found three things that cleanse the earth, and we're talking about spiritual toxicity. And One is water. We saw that in the flood. One is blood, and we see that in the sacrificial system, the New Testament with Christ. And then one is fire, and that's the, uh, the ultimate, you know, reset cleansing kind of thing that will eventually happen. So that's, that's my paper in a nutshell, and it's, it's a lot. It covers a lot, so I don't know if that... <laughs> If people if if people aren't grasping onto what I'm saying, I think you'll just have to read the paper. So, just shoot me an email. I'll send it to you. Uh, Swordplaypodcastgmail.com. Uh, <laughs> yeah the uh, the thing that's stood out to me. So the the whole time I'm reading, like I'm thinking about the light side, and I I was anticipating that, and then it it didn't come, and, and <laughs> so I'm looking forward to volume two, but. I mean that's that's the thing that's intriguing to me is uh, the the concept of life force as it pertains to the blood of Jesus because obviously his blood is different than ours. Um, he was one hundred percent human and yet he's also one hundred percent divine. He's God, and it's only his blood that is sufficient. No other, no other person can shed their blood and forgive sins. Only Jesus' blood is able to do that. So while he has uh, human blood, there's something unique about his life force that is able to, uh, when it is poured out, make atonement for our sins. Is that right? Yeah, that's right, because every other source of blood would be either spiritually toxic or insufficient in power to cover the the cleansing of all things okay now that's interesting spiritually toxic yeah why is that from sin (laughs) okay but so then what about babies 
well, I guess, um, you know, I haven't fully fleshed that out, but I, w- I would say that babies would have innocent blood, and that is probably why they were sought after in child sacrifice in the Old Testament in ancient Near East, and also uh, in today, in dark occultic circles, how satanic ritual and other dark occultic things still involve child sacrifice. It's like, what are they looking for in that child's blood? They're looking for a level of potency that doesn't exist in adult blood. And of course, children aren't God, so... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> while, while people may try to deify their children, it's a... Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So there is there is something there, but the child, even with innocent blood, like a child's blood, there is um, there's still not the potency uh, uh, for um, regenerating all of creation. Mm-hmm. Um, the only thing that can do that is in a, a source that is so deep and broad that uh, the, it can only come from the Creator Himself. Hmm. And so that is the that is the thing about Christ's sacrifice and why even i get a little um perturbed with the calvinistic you know not one drop of the blood was wasted because he only died for those he knew he would save it's just like what a shallow view of the depth of christ's life force christ as creator of all things nothing came into being uh except for that which came into being through him right created all things his depth of life force is uh, you cannot you it can never be used up. It is eternal. It is uh, it is more than the ocean. It is there's there's never enough consuming of his life force that could ever deplete him or hurt him or lessen him in any way, and that is. Uh, really what we should be thinking about in the Lord's Supper, because if we are taking in his body, his blood, the biggest thing that separates that from our initial thinking of like cannibalism, that's a modern initial thinking, but you know, the thinking of cannibal, like, are we, are we parasitic? Are we, are we taking, are we eating him? Is this cannibalism? Well, no, because you can't cannibalize the well the spring, the wellspring of all life force. Like it never lessens and never disappears. Hmm. And so you can't hurt him or lessen him. In fact, you can't exist without it (laughs) and you wouldn't exist without it. So Hmm. yeah, that's, that's also, I think, potent in our theology of the Lord's supper. And that could draw, that could really draw a bridge. I think between uh, some of the things our Catholic friends say, and some of the things our, Protestant friends, um, rubs them the wrong way. So life force is a big part of that. Well, Nick, my turn. Yep. Okay. Uh, so last night, uh, our good friend Paul Harrington, he sent me an article about some experimentation that has been happening with, um, well, these, these scientists, they injected uh these diodes into uh someone's brain and you know these diodes can emit light and so they 
can make the light shine on certain parts of their brain. And um, they notice that when they turn the light on to a certain pattern in a certain part of the brain, they can induce disassociation. So normally disassociation is what happens in someone's brain when they are going through extreme like pain and torture. And, uh, and then also there are drugs that can induce disassociation like, uh, out of body experiences. You know, we're talking, whether we're talking about ayahuasca or, or LSD or something like that. So now, Hey, you can skip the satanic ritual abuse. Just get the diodes in your brain, turn on the strobe light and boom, you're out of your body. Hmm. (laughs) So what do you think about, uh, our modern scientific research into disassociation? I have no idea. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, out of body. I guess if I were to make any connection. Yeah, what's an out of body experience? Maybe just tell us what you think about those. Mm hmm. I guess if I. So, so basically, so one of the things, if I'm not mistaken, about the, what is it, the DMT, the ayahuasca stuff, is you're doing that um, in order to have some kind of experience and and the 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 experiences that I've read about and heard about of people on uh, these mind altering drugs is mind altering substances I know they don't like to be associated with drugs and and all that but uh, is that um, well one a lot of I don't even know what percentage it is, but they they have encounters with um, beings, um, and what's wrong uh, with the spirit guide? Yeah, it, and and, so, and the idea is it's intended to connect you to uh, the universe, and you kind of realize who you are and you have this kind of new revelation. So, I mean, there's a lot of different directions that kind of go with this, right? One, you do have, um, pharmakeia, right? That's, uh, that's your witchcraft. That's how it's translated in the new Testament. But I mean, we get, yeah, yeah, we get our English, uh, term, uh, pharmacy from it. And, you know, while, while there, there are good medicines and, things like that. And we're supposed to take God's good creation and identify those things that are good and beneficial for us. There's, there is a, uh, a dark turn again, kind of like we talked about the, the beauty and create and creativity and stuff like that. There can be a dark side, there can be a light side. Um, for example, I, I think it's phenomenal. Like people that, that suffer from, uh, they have knee problems. One of the, um, one of the, uh, procedures that is done uh, is you can take um, injections in your knee, and as I understand it, the stuff that they inject in there is uh, um, it has been produced from rooster comb. You know the the comb of the rooster, uh-huh. and so they take that and they work it into 
this this uh, stuff that they're going to put into your knee, and it, it relieves knee pain, which I think is phenomenal, right? Here's you're taking you're taking this uh, uh, this natural thing in order to help people get better. Hmm. The question I always had was like, who's the first person to think? I wonder if that rooster comb would help me with my knee pain. <laughs> like, who made that connection? But anyway. Uh, and it, it 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 can be successful in in many people. Of course, I think I would never you know, do that. <laughs> <laughs> you're, inject, uh, you're injecting uh, animal tissue into your blood. It's like I don't know. Maybe it's all my research on life force and blood, but to me, that seems like a no no. Hmm. Uh, but I don't know. Keep going. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, I say all that to say that so um, the utilization of these, yes, I know they may be like naturally occurring type things and, you know, um, and all that. It's, it's, it is an abuse that I think might fall under the pharmacaea thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The other thing I think of is uh, what sober mindedness. We are to be sober minded and disassociating yourself from your body and from kind of your mind. I don't know that 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 would fall under being sober minded. Um, mm, I thought I had another thing there, but I can't think of what it is now. But um, so I'll tell you what my first thought was. Yeah, is that when you leave your body. Uh, what if you what if you come back into your body and there's a few new house guests there? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. you open you open the front door, you unlock the gate so that you can get out. Who's to say that when you come back in, there aren't some sort of demonic spirits who now have. Uh, the keys to your house right who now have a foothold on your property and so i you know well that's i think and that's, i think that can be taken care of uh but it's like is that really is that really a safe or wise thing to be doing and that's the the thing about the those that trip out on the the dmt and stuff like that is they so either the entities that they are encountering are um hallucinations or they are real and you and i you know we have a a pretty developed uh supernatural worldview that there are and we we differ on details but for the most part in the main plane i mean we've you know there are angels there are demons Mm -hmm. Uh, there's this whole spiritual realm that's around us and uh historically the pharmacaea stuff the sorcery stuff the witchcraft that was intended in order to get you connected with these entities, these beings, so that you could get guidance or an experience or, you know, information, right? Mm-hmm. And so they could be hallucinations. You could just be making it up in your own brain. However, I'm inclined to think that given the kind of historical precedent that when you start having these these uh, experiences via these um, uh, substances I think you're I think you're you're knocking on 
a door that you probably don't want to open, kind of like what you're talking about, and you're you're encountering these, no doubt, malevolent entities. And so you read these experiences that people have had on these hallucinogenics, and they're like, "Oh no, but it was good." You know, they were they were. Yeah. I just felt so warm. I felt comfortable. I felt whatever. And it's like, yeah, but the bad guys can masquerade as angels of light too. And and you know, they'll of course they're gonna. Of course, they're going to give you a good thing at first, right? They they want to sell you on the product, mm-hmm. but then you know, and I think we've talked about before, it's a bait and switch, and they they want to get you for other things. So, well, well, if you become their pawn and you listen to their guidance in their direction, they're leading what they want you to do with your life. Then uh, why wouldn't they keep being kind and nice and helpful, right? Yeah, it's because you are their servant now. You're, you're submitting to them. You're obeying them. And that kind of control, uh, that's very useful to the powers of darkness. So, I mean, you can now use the to, carrot or the stick. And uh, yeah, they, they don't mind using the carrot if you're just going to listen and do what they want you to do. And, you know, that, whether that and, and the things that they have you doing then might seem harmless, right? You are now a part of this new movement. Right, this new Christ consciousness, new age awakening movement. It's just like, well, that might seem harmless on the surface, but uh, you've chosen a side and you've been deceived to being in this camp in a very serious spiritual battle for the hearts and minds of humanity. So that's uh, it's very, very deceptive from my perspective. Um, so getting back to the article. Um, I guess did they did they say why they're doing this or they just, what's the what's the goal? I think they had some application there. Like one of the things was um, they could use it for in place of anesthesia. So hmm. um, you go through a surgery and let's say like you're allergic to anesthesia or something like that. It's just like well, just let's turn on the strobe light inside this part of the brain and uh, they'll leave their bodies for a little bit of time and then. Uh, we'll do the surgery and then they'll come back into their bodies and, um, you know, no pain except for recovery. So it could be that. Um, I think there are some people with like epilepsy who, uh, this kind of activity, they actually observed this kind of activity happening in their brain. And so they just mimicked it with diodes. And so, um, if they could learn how to turn it on, maybe they could learn how to turn it off and help people with epilepsy from having these out-of-body experiences, like stop the out-of-body experience that way. Hmm. And so their application seemed, uh, you know, well-intended, right? Sure. But uh, like you said, right, it could could be well-intended. It might even be uh, very helpful in certain scenarios, but it can be used for evil. It can be turned for darkness. And so you have to... You have to think about, there could be good things to come along the, with this. There could be bad things to come along with this. Would it have been better just not to open that Pandora's box in the first place? So, and we've, uh, even even secular people have said yes to that on a few occasions, right? Thinking about human cloning, right? In the 90s, that was a big deal. Mm-hmm. They cloned Dolly the sheep, and they were like, well, human cloning seems like a Pandora's box we should not be opening. So no one's allowed to do it, right? In the United yeah. States. Now, in China, I don't think they have that rule. So 
Right. <laughs> so, uh, is this in my, your turn? Your turn. Uh, so, Alex, many of our listeners may not know that you, um, you are a, you have a certain musical prowess. That's how I'll put it. Um, you are a musician. You've been a musician for a number of years. You've played a number of different instruments. Um, why don't you, uh, and you do, you still play a number of instruments. Um, and I don't think you're near where you can actually play something. Otherwise I'd ask you to do, do that. Um, (laughs) but, uh, maybe talk, talk a little bit about kind of, uh, kind of your, uh, because I know you write songs, right? You've you've written a number of songs. They're all. Uh, I don't write. I don't. I haven't written lyrics for songs. Well, know. wait a minute. There's the Ice Cream Man song. That well, that's true. You, you took uh, the Entertainer. Yeah, that's my. You know, that's that's more along the lines of my my Weird Al. Uh, spirit coming out, right? So, <laughs> Alex, when so when we lived in moments. Kansas, you Alex took that that um, that song and you put words to it. There may already have been. I don't know if there are words to it already or not, but I don't think so. Uh, <laughs> but you, uh, because it's so it's connected to the ice cream man. You you put lyrics about the ice cream man <laughs> coming That's around right. to your block, and That's right. And Kim always Kim reminded me the other day. Uh, that um, like you did that so fast like we we saw you and like you were plunking it out on a piano and then you went and I think you went and took a shower and then you came back and you're like hey I got words and you started playing it and singing the song <laughs> that's right it did it came, it came to me in the <laughs> came to me in the shower I took my shower it's like boom the whole Ice Cream Man song came out hey listen to the Ice Cream Man song <laughs> Yeah, that's how it happens with music sometimes. You, you just have like one little kernel of an idea, and um, and then it just all of a sudden turns into something. So, or even I wake up like that sometimes. I'll wake up with a hymn, like not a church hymn, but I'll I'll wake up with a melody in my head, and before I forget it, I'll record it on my phone. So on my phone, I have like thirty of these melodies or these hymns that I like hum or I'll whistle and uh, a few of them I do have words for because I because in my mind they sounded like a like an acapella like song like a four-part song um, and I've come up with chants for like a melodic chant for memorizing scripture hmm. so like I have John the gospel of John I have chapter 1 verses 1 through 18 the whole prologue I have that memorized, and I'll probably never forget it because I put it to a chant, like a melodic chant. Okay, you got to give yeah, me some so. of this. <laughs> we need to hear. Just give oh, us man. give us the first three verses. All right. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being. That has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. So there's one through five. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> That's 
awesome, dude. That's so awesome. <laughs> that is phenomenal. Oh, I love that. <laughs> you know where I got the idea? Uh, Gregorian chant. Yeah, actually, I got it from the Muslims. So, oh. <laughs> <laughs> so I uh, when I went to India for a month with my wife back in 2011, there was a guy who had converted out of Islam to Christianity. And the book that converted him is he didn't get a hold of a Bible, but he did get a hold of one copy of John's Gospel. And he read through that and he said, wow, like this is the path of love. Islam is not the path of love. This is. And it hooked him. And so he fell in love with Jesus and got a hold of the rest of the Bible. And he was seeking out for other Christians and he got baptized in secret. And he like tries to still reach out to his family, right? Because his family has all these uh, myths about Christianity. Like he, when I was there, he got to meet up with his nephew that lived in a different part of the country because he went traveling with us. And his nephew said, uncle, is it true that you now have to drink pig urine because you're a Christian and that's what Christians do? And his, (laughs) his name was Wahid and Wahid was like, what? No, no, I don't have to. All that stuff you hear about Christians is a lie. Like it's just false. It's a, it's a myth. Like this is, let me tell you about what Christianity is really, what really is. So anyway, he grew up a faithful Muslim. And so uh, what a lot of Muslims do, a lot of Muslim kids, especially is they memorize large portions of the Quran. Some of them memorize the whole Quran. Hmm. And the way they do it is they they chant it. They have melodies. They have a song that they sing it to. And that's just such a powerful memory tool. I mean, uh, our, our Jewish friends have been doing that with the Torah for forever, right? So um, it's a powerful tool. The Jewish background faith people do it. Muslim, Islam people faith do it. Christians used to do it more often, right? You're talking about Gregorian chant, things like that. And so I was like, man, that's a, I think that's a powerful tool for a reason. So let's try it out. So that's what I did. Man, we need to bring that back. That is so awesome. (laughs) It's like stuck in my head now. Our whole church uh, memorized the prologue. They didn't chant it like I did, but they said it helped them remember. A couple of them said the chant helped them remember. But they went, you know, Mine's to the NASB, right? So they have different translations. So by the end, I think everybody kind of had like a an unintentional uh, collage of everybody's translations. And so yeah, <laughs> a few verses from here, a few verses from there. So that's um, so I have I have uh, on my phone a handful of recordings where I've I've come up with a chant, and I was like, this would be a really good chant because like it doesn't develop into a whole song where you have uh, court verse and chorus. But it's a clever enough uh, just little phrase that can be repeated over and over again without sounding too old because you're because you're just you're speaking, you're singing, you're chanting the scriptures. So I I have ideas for that to put the more large sections of scripture. And and you've also, in addition to that, you've you've composed instrumental songs, right? Yeah, that's my favorite. Like just instruments, right? No lyrics, just mm-hmm. instruments. I I like that. I like I like soundtrack music to movies. I like uh, I like you know s- certain classical music. I like a lot of modern uh, instrumental only music. I really like uh, solo piano music, yeah. and that's what I that's what I play the most myself. Is um, 
it's just solo piano and i don't do you i don't even like playing for other people i just if it's just me by myself nobody hears uh you know there's no pressure or no performance going on and i just get to play to me that's that's such a time of refreshing um just renewal for me like that really fills my tank so that's that's the top thing for me what were you saying uh, do you, well do you uh so i have a pandora channel uh that's all uh it's relaxation radio and um and it is a lot of uh piano instrument we get like our culture gets so fixated on like pop music there's so much good music out there that isn't pop music um there's like uh do you know philip wesley yeah yeah Uh, helen jane long yeah um of course and these robin spielberg is a big um just super talented peter cater yeah (laughs) doug hammer so yeah they're very very talented i mean the the melody lines that they come up with uh, it's just great. It's just great, and they, a lot of them have that. Some, a lot of them are categorized as new age music, but the, it's not. It doesn't have a theological thing that goes with it because there's no words, right? And mm-hmm. what we call new age is really just kind of a continuation, I think, of what would be called romantic music. So, um, from the romantic period, but maybe I'm misspeaking. I, I don't have a music history, you know, degree or base for that or anything. But but you do have a degree in music. I have an associate's degree in audio production. Audio production, all right. Yeah, so I have four semesters of schooling where I went and I learned how to use <clears throat> recording technology and also learned some music theory and arranging so that I could communicate and collaborate and work with musicians in the studio. So the idea was to make you um, a multi-purpose guy in a recording setting where you can work with the artist, but also set up the microphones correctly, but also record and edit and mix and post-produce and sort of be this kind of jack-of-all-trades to help somebody put out uh, an album. So that was that was a little four-semester uh, adventure into that. So <laughs> learned a lot of things that have, that have become helpful, right? I can do this podcast because I have that uh, experience. But uh, yeah. yeah, it never really became my career. And I wasn't uh, intending it to, I don't think. I don't think I had a big plan in mind. And it's also a very hard career field to get into. And if you do, it's hard to exist in that career field. I uh, I was like really picky about what kind of music I wanted to record. And so I was like, yeah, I don't think I'm going to make money this way. So. <laughs> mm-hmm. so, yeah, that's my little stint into audio production. But... Uh, but yeah, maybe maybe I'll have some things uh, for public consumption one day, and if so, we will uh, we'll do a, a swordplay promotion for it. <laughs> well, I know when I had my other podcast, um, you for I don't know how many episodes, maybe like seventy five, a hundred. Like you're you had a uh, a MIDI um, song that that you had you had done. Some kind of, and it was the intro music to my podcast for, <laughs> yeah, several episodes. That's right. I forgot about that. <laughs> yeah, just like an all, uh, it's digital instruments, right? That I'm just using the computer for, and I had a keyboard, and so I was like 
trying to do a guitar solo on the keyboard. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that, yeah. Yep, good times. Good times. And well, I had a podcast before Swordplay, and it was really short-lived. Um, I think I did 15 episodes or something like that. It's not out there anymore. It was called Karooks of the Canon. And um, I wrote a, a piano uh, line for the intro and for the outro. And so, hmm. yeah. So that was fun. Unfortunately, the school I went to, um, they don't exist anymore. And that's a big huh. bummer because one of the uh, things I got as an alumni is I got to use the studios for free. So, man, fine print, you don't get that perk if they don't exist. <laughs> <laughs> so. Well, Nick, I, I want to. Uh, I like how we're ending on a on a lighter note. We're sitting at hour sixteen. I'll uh, give you the last question. I want you to tell us maybe about uh, you're a you're a big reader. Like you're not only you love reading, but you're fast at reading. Uh, you've read broadly. You're someone I would say is well read, um, and so and you're writing your own book, right? <laughs> so why don't you tell the audience? Um, Maybe some of the books that you've been reading or, or a book that you have read recently that you you really like or really made you think about something, uh, something along those lines. Uh, let's see. So, okay, so let me just address the, uh, the speed thing. I'm fast when I have to be. <laughs> and I'm, uh, I'm, I'm in grad school. And uh, right now I'm only taking one course, but um, when I take two courses at a time, I really got to pick the pace up. And so, um, yeah, I had to read um, Erickson's Christian Theology book for my systematic theology classes one and two, which is, it's like 11, 1200 pages. No, man. (laughs) Over, you know, so the courses ran from January to... um, May, so, you know, like five months. But, I mean, so I had just that book, plus I had, you know, the stack of books for grad school is just ridiculously tall, and so um, I'm fast when I have to. When I don't have to be, I like to take my time, and um, so let me see here. Uh, What have I read lately? Looking at my shelves here. Uh, so I finished. I did finish Greg Boyd's God at War, and um, I've moved on to Volume Two of. It's just a two-volume series uh, that Greg Boyd wrote, uh, um, Satan and the Problem of Evil. God at War is the biblical case for what he calls the warfare worldview. That uh, the reason there's evil in the world is because the world is a war zone. And you have these powerful, malevolent spiritual entities that are working against God and uh, and His will, and that's why there's so much evil. And so, Volume Two is kind of his. He approaches it philosophically in order to demonstrate the um, uh, explanatory power of the world warfare worldview. And so, he has like th- theses that he's proving. Uh, not only from the Bible, but also philosophically, and um, it seems a bit more heady than God at War. But uh, so I'm I'm reading that right now. 
Um, uh, what else? I thought you were uh, going to say Stephen King. Well, I'm getting there. I'm trying to. So I'm trying to <laughs> categorize these. I'm reading The Shining right now. Um, I've started reading. So I, I have. Uh, we have an ex- a very substantial library at home, in addition to what I have here at the office. And the stuff at the office is mostly just tools, right? It's the stuff that I need in order to do my job as a minister. The stuff at home, I do have some of that at home, but most of it is uh, fiction. And so I've started over with, or started reading Stephen King chronologically. So I read Carrie, I read um, Salem's Lot, uh, which is his his vampire uh, story. Um, and now I'm on The Shining. So, and I, I am a fan of horror. I like the horror genre. H.P. Lovecraft. Um, I've, I've got his complete works. Um, uh, Dracula, right? Love, love. The, I mean, there's just the the atmospheric terror that that brings when you're in Dracula's castle. Um, yeah, I'm I'm finishing up Ronald Reagan's diary. Such <laughs> <laughs> a ridiculous wow. statement. Is that horror uh, as well? No, no. This is uh, <laughs> <laughs> this is nonfiction. Uh, so Ronald Reagan kept a diary almost daily while he was in office for eight years, and it's called the Reagan Diaries. Um, and so I'm in 1988. It's his last year in office, and he has he has is very um, very plain spoken and kind of folksy type of. Uh, diary journal that he kept while in office like I was reading an entry the other day and he says um, someone was saying something that wasn't true and so he just very succinctly says taint true or taint so something like that um, <laughs> he was he there was of course the assassination attempt early in in his uh, uh, time as president and when he when he records in his journal after he's recovering he says Getting shot hurts. <laughs> it's just, just very, very simple, very plain spoken. When, when it was tax day one year, April fifteenth, he's like, the president ought to do something about that. You know, he's he's writing as the president. So, <laughs> kind of, you know, most of it is just day to day, kind of what he was doing. And um, did he talk about aliens? He, I, nothing about Area Fifty One or aliens generally. Remember when he uh, hypothetically talked about aliens in one of his speeches? I thought that was Jimmy Carter. Well, it might have been him too, but in I think it was 1987, uh, Reagan made this speech. He said, perhaps we need some outside universal threat to make us recognize this common bond, like talking about how the world could unite against a common enemy. And he said, I occasionally think how quickly our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. <laughs> and then he he transitions out of that and he's like but then i ask you is not an alien force already among us what could be more alien to the universal aspirations of our peoples than war and the threat of war so anyway he sort of like just throws it out there there's an outer game of detectives well there's an outer limits episode about that um and it's we're talking the old outer limits not the reboot in the late 90s early 2000s but is that like a Twilight Zone show? It's different. It's more um, it's more sci-fi. They really go over with the creatures and the science fiction part of it. Whereas 
I think Twilight Zone seemed a bit more subdued. Also, Outer Limits was kind of a long form. It was an hour-long episode, whereas Twilight Zone, except for season four, Twilight Zone was only a half-hour episodic thing. But the um, uh, it may be the very first episode, but um, the Andromeda creature, the Andromeda something. But these scientists, they um, they get a guy who volunteers, and they somehow inject him with like alien DNA and he becomes this alien and um, and then he escapes from the lab and and the idea was we're gonna we're gonna have this guy we're gonna let, we're gonna have him land and he's gonna call the governments of the world to stop because you know this is the 1960s you have the Cold War raging and all these threats from you know nuclear uh, bombs and everything. We'll have all the world governments listen to this. We'll have him come down and come out as an alien, and he'll say, "Stop fighting, or else." And then, um, and then we'll get we'll we'll work toward world peace. Anyway, the guy gets out of the lab, and I think it's because um, his wife or you know his sweetheart shows up, and she like passes out because she sees him, and he sees himself in a mirror, and he he's like, ah, "I'm a monster," and he runs out. And instead of uniting the world in a bond of peace, he ends up being shot to death by hunters. <laughs> um, spoiler alert! But wow! So you, you have you have that motif yeah. in fiction, right? Yeah. The, the, we're going to band together against this existential threat, right? Yeah, Independence Day, right? Will Smith, it, welcome to Earth, right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, so. For Reagan to insert it as a hypothetical, all right, whatever, I guess. But <clears throat> um, what else? What else am I reading? I don't know. I you know just a lot you of different about stuff. Boyd's God at War. God at War, you and, and about so I've, I'm following that up with Satan and the Problem of Evil, The Shining, Stephen King stuff. Uh, uh, yeah, and I, I'm I'm a big Stephen King fan. I just I just am. Um, and then nonfiction. Um, Reagan Diaries. Reagan Diaries. It seems like there's something else, but I oh oh I know. So I, I know we're studying, uh, and so when this gets released, I think the introduction to First Peter will be released, and so we're we're gonna at some point cover chapter three, and we're gonna have exclusively an episode for three nineteen, and probably also four six right. about. Um, you know he uh, uh, the the descent right and all that. So I'm yeah. reading actually two books on that. The harrowing of hell. Yeah, there's that. But yeah. this this is, so one I'm reading is uh, it was published like last year, um, and it's basically an attempt to recapture an evangelical theology of Holy Saturday. Um and and so it's all about the line in the creed, the Apostles' Creed. He descended to the dead, and mm-hmm. so this writer is talking about what that has meant um, historically, how that has been, how these the the various texts, which include Romans ten, um, Ephesians four, and First uh, Peter chapter three, and also mm-hmm. just like a peppering of Matthew twenty seven and kind of these these texts that are in Acts 2, uh, how these texts have been understood historically mm-hmm. and kind of reasoning to, okay, what is it, what what is the best way to understand this descent? And then the latter part of the book is he's unpacking what it means um, 
ecclesiologically as a church? What does it mean eschatologically toward the end times? What does it mean uh, anthropologically um, for us as human beings? What does it mean theolo- uh, theologically, Father, Son, Holy Spirit? So very interesting read. He descended to the dead. And then I'm reading another one by a guy named Walton, which was written a number of years ago, which is about Christ's proclamation to the spirits in 1 Peter 3.19 and 4.6. Very very bland title, but um, he's a, uh, a Catholic priest who, uh, a Catholic theologian who basically synthesizes all of the views or all the all the all the uh, material on the topic and he he kind of reasons to his own conclusion on it so in preparation for our discussion about that i've been uh reading those two books so wow so you just listed uh i think six books that you're reading right now by the way, I didn't, so that's not even all the stuff I'm reading in preparation for, like my sermons and Bible classes. I'm reading, I'm working through Romans on Wednesday nights, so I've been reading D. Martin Lloyd Jones's commentary on Romans. Um, another one by uh, Dunn, his two volumes. Uh, the other one by what's this guy's name? Uh, Barnhouse. Um, so. All those different things, commentary on the New Testament, New Testament's use of the Old Testament by Carson and Beale. So, yeah, well, like I like I said, you are a prolific reader. <laughs> you well, read a lot of books, man. It's a lot of books. Yeah, Even what are you simultaneously, reading? man? I'll start like three or four books, and like I'll never finish them. And so I'll get like the first <laughs> introduction or chapter done, and then. You know, I'll bounce back into uh, to and fro, but yeah, I I definitely don't plow through books like you do. <laughs> so, I I am reading. Um, actually, I'm reading The Stand right now with uh, you know, oh, Stephen yeah. King. And yeah, so I read it's that the, in high school. Yeah, it's the unabridged version, so it's like 1,200 pages. Yeah. Um, I think I'm around page 300. I started reading it because a member here at church, he wanted to go through it again. And so he bought me a copy and we just kind of, uh, we're going to go through it together, but he's a, he's a avid reader as well. So he like finished it really fast and I'm on page 300 and that was like six months ago. So, (laughs) um, so I'll, I'll finish it eventually, but there's a, a few other books. Um, there's a book by a guy named Pollock called the fourth phase of water. It's a science book. It's about uh, water research and um, something he calls structured water. So I've got through the first, you know, introduction and chapter, first chapter of that. Pretty uh, fascinating stuff. Um, I mean, I work my way through uh, De Silva's apocryphal uh, introduction to the apocrypha for yeah. our, for our podcast. That's a good one. Um, I haven't read whole books all the way through since I was still doing master's classes. So, um, yeah, I have, I have a couple of books that I want to start. I want to read, but man, I am a slow reader. Like you say you can read fast when you have to, even when my life depends on it, I cannot (laughs) read fast. Like I just can't, I can't do it. I retain what I read pretty well, but I'm very slow reader. 
So, and not much time, right? And then when the option is there for recreation, right? If, if I have a moment to play the piano or the moment to like read a book, I'll play the piano. Mm. So, <clears throat> yeah, this is the problem with having so many hobbies. <laughs> like, huh. so. By the way, fun fact, the stand by word count is Stephen King's longest book uh, the stand unabridged the uncut version 467,812 words <laughs> it is it's so long i mean it flows well i don't feel like it's taking forever when i read it like it does it's a good he's a good storyteller so he yeah he has a book called uh, on writing it's a part autobiography and the other part is uh Basically, his master class on how to write fiction. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Great book. I've read it a couple times. And he's got a section in there where he talks about writing the stand. And, like, he get he got, like, 500 pages into it. And then he was like, I don't know what to do with this. I, I can't do anything with it. And so he didn't throw it out. He just put it in a drawer and left it there because he's like, man, it's just it's 500, 500 pages and I can't do anything with it. <laughs> and uh, And finally... Uh, after several months, he like something, you know, he, he got the inspiration for, oh, here's how I can, and then he brought it back out and he finished it. And um, I just, I, that's such a that's such a crazy story to me because it's like 500 pages because it, it was back in the day when it was, you know, typed on a typewriter. And that's <laughs> a long way to go and then go, I can't do anything with this. yeah that'd be that'd be hard a lot of work it's a lot of work well maybe one day there'll be some published stories uh from the uh, swordplay publishing house right yeah chronicles Uh, of ben yeah ben braun main character is that what your story's called uh, which, I don't, it doesn't have again? an official title right now. It's uh, right. The word document that I have saved is uh, "demonological education." That's what I got. It doesn't, doesn't really, doesn't really, and and because I want to write it's another a one. Title. It's a terrible title. I know. Title. I, know. <laughs> I don't know. I I can't I can't think of a title right now. It'll probably come to me once I have it all complete, and I'll be like, oh yeah, that's it. Dark relics, of course. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, I get I get royalties on that phrase, by the way. Trademark. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I have a short story I wrote about Moses. Yeah, where, with Metatron, right? That's right. <laughs> he makes an appearance <laughs> where uh, in the Book of Jude, where it says the archangel Michael and the devil disputed about the body of Moses. And so I was like, what does that mean? And so uh, nobody knows. So I made up a story about it. So, <laughs> <laughs> But I did try to use as many, uh, as many unoriginal things to me as possible, things that I came across in, in my research, whether it be from Josephus, you know, a good deep amount of stuff in that, or Second Temple literature or something like that. But short story, very, very short Maybe I'll do a series of short stories. So many projects, so little time. Hmm. And we're about to have a, a baby, so, you know, baby four on the way. 
Yeah. Yeah. Plenty of downtime with that. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Anything else? Did Did we cover everything? Man, we covered a lot. We covered a lot. I don't know if we'll edit any of this out or not, but we are yeah. sitting at California over an wildfires. Hour. Yeah. <laughs> over an hour and a half. Vaccines, so. beauty, life force, out of body, disassociation, music, and then what are you reading? Yeah. So diligent listener, if you're still here with us right now, <laughs> kudos to you, friend. You are yeah. a true fan indeed. So I uh thankful for our listeners. This was Can't fun. get enough sword play? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Search in the po- Apple Podcast and Google Play Music Stores, respectively, Swordplay, and you'll and, find all the episodes. And when um, Amazon Podcast launches their platform, we will probably include that as well. So stay tuned for mm. that. If you have any thoughts, any questions, any feedback, be sure to send us a question uh, to send an email to swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. That's swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. And we um, really had a lot of fun with this. Thanks for hanging in there with us. And we'll catch you next time on another episode of Swordplay. Swordplay.